Book Three, Chapter Two, Part Three of Lord of the World. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Therese. Lord of the World by Robert U. Benson. Book Three, Chapter Two, Part Three. The little chapel in the house below was scarcely more dignified than the other rooms. Of ornaments, except those absolutely essential to liturgy and devotion, there were none. In the plaster of the walls were indented in slight relief the fourteen stations of the cross. A small stone image of the Mother of God stood in a corner, with an ironwork candlestick before it, and on the solid, uncarved stone altar, raised on a stone step, stood six more iron candlesticks and an iron crucifix. A tabernacle, also of iron, shrouded by linen curtains, stood beneath the cross. A small stone slab projecting from the wall served as a credence. There was but one window, and this looked into the court, so that the eyes of strangers might not penetrate. It seemed to the Syrian priest, as he went about his business, laying out the vestments in the little sacristy that opened out on one side of the altar, preparing the cruets and stripping the covering from the altar-cloth, that even that slight work was wearying. There seemed a certain oppression in the air. As to how far that was the result of his broken rest, he did not know, but he feared that it was one more of those scaroso days that threatened. That yellowish tinge of dawn had not passed with the sun rising. Even now, as he went noiselessly on his bare feet between the predella and the predu, where the silent, white figure was still motionless, he caught now and again, above the roof across the tiny court, a glimpse of that faint, sand-tinged sky that was the promise of beat and heaviness. He finished at last, lighted the candles, genuflected, and stood with bowed head, waiting for the Holy Father to rise from his knees. A servant's footstep sounded in the court, coming across to hear Mass, and simultaneously the Pope rose and went towards the sacristy, where the red vestments of God who came by fire were laid ready for the sacrifice. Sylvester's bearing at Mass was singularly unostentatious. He moved as swiftly as any young priest. His voice was quite even and quite low, and his pace neither rapid nor pompous. According to tradition, he occupied half an hour, abomictu adamictum. And even in the tiny empty chapel, he observed to keep his eyes always downcast. And yet the Syrian never served his master without a thrill of something resembling fear. It was not only his knowledge of the awful dignity of this simple celebrant, but, Although he could not have expressed it so, there was an aroma of an emotion about the vestmented figure that affected him almost physically, an entire absence of self-consciousness, and in its place the consciousness of some other presence, a perfection of manner even in the smallest detail that could only arise from absolute recollection. Even in Rome in the old days it had been one of the sights of Rome to see Father Franklin say Mass. Seminary students on the eve of ordination were sent to that site to learn the perfect manner and method. Today all was as usual, but at the communion the priest looked up suddenly at the moment when the host had been consumed, with a half-impression that either a sound or a gesture had invited it. And, as he looked, his heart began to beat thick and convulsive at the base of his throat. Yet to the outward eyes there was nothing unusual. The figure stood there with bowed head the chin resting on the tips of the long fingers, the body absolutely upright and standing with that curious light poise as if no weight rested upon the feet. But to the inner sense, something was apparent the Syrian could not in the least formulate it to himself, 
but afterwards he reflected that he had stared expecting some visible or audible manifestation to take place. It was an impression that might be described under the terms of either light or sound. At any instant that delicate, vivid force, that to the eyes of the soul burned beneath the red chasuble and the white alb, might have suddenly welled outwards under the appearance of a gush of radiant light, rendering luminous not only the clear brown flesh seen beneath the white hair, but the very texture of the coarse, dead, stained stuffs that swathed the rest of the body. Or it might have shown itself in the strain of a long cord on strings, or wind, as if the mystical union of the dedicated soul with the ineffable Godhead and humanity of Jesus Christ generated such a sound as ceaselessly flows out with the river of life from beneath the throne of the Lamb. Or yet once more it might have declared itself under the guise of a perfume, the very essence of distilled sweetness, such a scent as that which, streaming out through the gross tabernacle of a saint's body, is to those who observe it as the breath of heavenly roses. The moments passed in that hush of purity and peace. Sounds came and went outside, the rattle of a cart far away, the sawing of the first cicada in the coarse grass twenty yards away beyond the wall. Someone behind the priest was breathing short and thick as under the pressure of an intolerable emotion. And yet the figure stood there still, without a movement or sway to break the carved motionlessness of the alb-folds or the perfect poise of the white-shod feet. When he moved at last to uncover the precious blood, to lay his hands on the altar and adore it, it was as if a statue had stirred into life. To the servant it was very nearly as a shock. And when the chalice was empty, that first impression reasserted itself. The human and the external died in the embrace of the divine and invisible and once more silence lived and glowed. And again, as the spiritual energy sank back again into its origin, Sylvester stretched out the chalice. With knees that shook and eyes wide in expectation, the priest rose, adored, and went to the credence. It was customary after the Pope's Mass that the priest himself should offer the sacrifice in his presence, but today, as soon as the vestments had been laid one by one on the rough chest, Sylvester turned to the priest. Presently, he said softly, Go up, father, at once to the roof, and tell the cardinal to be ready. I shall come in five minutes. It was surely a scirocco day, though the priest, as he came up onto the flat roof, overhead instead of the clear blue proper to that hour of the morning, lay a pale yellow sky darkening even to brown at the horizon. Tabor before him hung distant and somber, seen through the impalpable atmosphere of sand, and across the plain, as he glanced behind him, Beyond the white streak of Nain, nothing was visible except the pale outline of the tops of the hills against the sky. Even at this morning hour, too, the air was hot and breathless, broken only by the slow, stifling lift of the southwestern breeze that, blowing across countless miles of sand beyond, far away Egypt, gathered up the heat of the huge waterless continent, and was pouring it, with scarcely a streak of sea to soften its malignity, on this poor strip of land. Carmel, too, as he turned again, was swathed about its base with mist, half dry and half damp, and above showed its long bullhead running out defiantly against the western sky. The very table as he touched it was dry and hot to the hand. By midday the stew would be intolerable. He pressed the lever and waited, pressed it again and waited again. There came the answering ring and he tapped across the eighty miles of air that his eminence's presence was required at once. A minute or two passed, and then, after another rap of the bell, 
a line flicked out on the new white sheet. I am here. Is it His Holiness? He felt a hand upon his shoulder and turned to see Sylvester, hooded and in white, behind his chair. Tell him yes. Ask him if there is further news. The Pope went to the chair once more and sat down, and a minute later the priest, with growing excitement, read out the answer. Inquiries are pouring in. Many expect your holiness to issue a challenge. My secretaries have been occupied since four o'clock. The anxiety is indescribable. Some are denying that they have a pope. Something must be done at once. Is that all? asked the pope. Again the priest read out the answer. Yes and no. The news is true. It will be enforced immediately. Unless a step is taken immediately, there will be widespread and final apostasy. Very good murmured the Pope in his official voice. Now listen carefully, Eminence. He was silent for a moment, his fingers joined beneath his chin as just now at Mass. Then he spoke. We are about to place ourselves unreservedly in the hands of God. Human prudence must no longer restrain us. We command you, then, using all discretion that is possible, to communicate these wishes of ours to the following persons under the strictest secrecy, and to no others whatsoever. And for this service you are to employ messengers, taken from the order of Christ crucified, two for each message, which is not to be committed to writing in any form. The members of the Sacred College, numbering twelve, the Metropolitans and Patriarchs through the entire world, numbering twenty-two, the Generals of the Religious Orders, the Society of Jesus, the Friars, the Monks Ordinary, and the Monks Contemplative, four. These persons, thirty-eight in number, with the Chaplain of Your Eminence, who shall act as notary, and my own, who shall assist him, and ourself, forty-one all told, these persons are to present themselves here at our palace of Nazareth, not later than the eve of Pentecost. We feel ourselves unwilling to decide the steps necessary to be taken with reference to the new decree, except we first hear the counsel of our advisers, and give them an opportunity of communicating freely one with another. These words, as we have spoken them, are to be forwarded to all those persons whom we have named, and your eminence will further inform them that our deliberations will not occupy more than four days. As regards the questions of provisioning the council and all matters of that kind, your eminence will dispatch today the chaplain of whom we have spoken, who with my own chaplain will at once set about preparations, and your eminence will yourself follow, appointing Father Marabout to act in your absence not later than four days hence. Finally, to all who have asked explicit directions in the face of this new decree, communicate this one sentence and no more. Lose not your confidence, which hath a great reward. For yet a little while, and he that is to come will come and will not delay. Sylvester the Bishop, Servant of the Servants of God End of Book 3, Chapter 2, Part 3 Recording by Maria Therese